Good morning. It's good to be with you folks again. Let me uh, begin this morning by thanking you so much for all your prayers and support of us as we've been down in Texas. That training has been going very well. We've been learning some very good practical things that I believe will be of a real help to us very soon here in the future. And again, thank you for your financial support. You folks are playing uh, a tremendous part in meeting our practical needs. So we, are, we are very grateful for your help in that regard. Well, Pastor Wesco asked me to come this morning and follow up on the message he preached a few weeks ago on the subject of sending missionaries, if you'll recall that message that he preached. I'll, I'll refresh your memory a little bit here. If you'll recall that message, he laid out some basic principles on what a missionary is and what it means for a church to send them. So he pointed out that a missionary is someone who is sent with a purpose when the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. He sent him with a missionary purpose. Jesus has given his disciples the Great Commission, which by its very scope must be a collective command for the whole body of Christ. The Holy Spirit has been given to the church and he imparts the necessary power to witness of Christ. And then if you'll remember, as he preached on Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 18, he said, in a sense, we're all missionaries, but if we're going to fulfill the great commission of all around the world, as Christ said, then some of us have to actually go to the uttermost parts of the world. And then he wrapped up in Acts 13, where, we, where you saw that the church at Antioch, as we saw again this morning during family school, sent away Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. These men had been called of the Spirit of God to this mission. And the church at Antioch recognized that call and eventually, excuse me, <clears throat> and acknowledged that the Holy Spirit had led in this way. Sending is us fasting, praying, and confirming the call of the Lord, recommending and sending missionaries. So eventually, I want us to look more at Acts 13 this morning. We're going to look at a couple other passages before we get there. But what I hope to communicate to you by the grace of God this morning is that what we see in Acts chapter 13, even though that's just a few little short verses there, describing the relationship of Paul to the church at Antioch, what we see there is actually a practical application or outworking, if you will, of one of the greatest themes found in the New Testament. So let us go to the Lord in prayer here, and we will consider what he has for us this morning. Lord, we thank you so much for today and for the freedom we have to gather in this place and to worship you. Lord, please help us not to waste the opportunities and the freedoms that you have given us. Lord, I ask that you would take your word this morning. Lord, would you fill me with your spirit and help me to say only those things that you would have me to say. And Lord, would you encourage hearts and stir them this morning with what you want to do in this world. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. The first thing I'd like us to consider this morning is the high privilege of sending. The high privilege of sending missionaries. Sending missionaries and being sent as a missionary are high privileges because th these are outworkings or like we said applications of the church of Jesus Christ living and working 
with him. If you would turn with me to John chapter 14 to begin with here. As Christians, we look forward with great hope to the day that Jesus Christ is coming again. Amen? Amen. Amen. It was well said by one theologian that God's purpose for us is not just future happiness or a guaranteed entrance into heaven, but perfect likeness to Christ and therefore to himself. God could not, in fact, have designed a higher destiny for his people than that they should be completely like his only son in whom he delights. As the Bible says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And friends, that is a wonderful, glorious truth. That is a privilege that Jesus Christ bought and won for us with his own blood. And if we're here today and we're born again, one day we will surely experience that. But as we look forward to that day, let us not lose sight of the fact that God has bestowed on us an amazing honor and privilege in this life where we're living today, right now. And this wonderful honor, this high privilege that Jesus Christ has bestowed upon us is that his people in this life would live and work with him. Not just for him, but with him. I want us to see this theme here in these scriptures. We're not going to dwell long here, but as we read this passage, consider what Jesus is saying to his disciples just before he left for the cross. In John chapter 14 and verse 15, he says, If ye love me, keep my commandments, and I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. I will not leave you comfortless, I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world seeth me no more. Yet ye see me, because I live, ye shall live also. At that day ye shall know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me. And he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love him and will manifest myself to him. Judas saith unto him, not Iscariot, Lord, how is it that thou wilt manifest thyself unto us and not unto the world? Jesus answered and said unto him, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. He that loveth me not keepeth not my sayings, and the word which ye hear is not mine, but the Father's which sent me. And over in 1 John chapter 1, we see a similar thought. <clears throat> that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and shew unto you that eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things write we unto you for this purpose, that your joy may be It was the plan of God that those he redeemed, that those who were born again by his spirit would enjoy fellowship with him from the day they were saved through eternity. That was his plan. That was his goal. One of his goals in salvation. But notice also, not only do we have the privilege of working, of living with him, but God actually desires that we labor with him. Back in John chapter 15 and verses 15 through 16, Jesus said this to his disciples, Henceforth I call you not servants, for the servant knoweth not what his Lord doeth, but I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard of my Father I have made known unto you. Ye have not chosen me, but I have chosen you and ordained you, that ye should go and bring forth fruit, and that your fruit should remain that whatsoever ye shall ask of the Father, he may give it to you. A servant or a slave just does what he's told. But in this passage, Jesus told his disciples, I am letting you in on what God is doing. I am making known unto you what God is at work doing in this world, what he is up to. And I am giving you the opportunity to participate in the divine plan. The fruit that I, God, am seeking among the human race, my plan is that you would bear it through me. Now, my friends, if we stop and we meditate on that, that should make our heads spin that God intends to accomplish his work in this world through people like you and me. People that used to be his enemies. People that in and of ourselves can't do anything. And yet that is his plan. In Mark chapter 15 and verse 15, the Great Commission, he said unto them, his disciples, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And then later on in verses 19 and 20, he says, So then, after the Lord has spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat at the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, and don't miss this, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. Amen. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul said, For God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Would you turn with me to Matthew chapter 9? Like I said, we're going to end up in Acts 13 eventually, so just hang on here. Acts 
I'm sure you're familiar with this passage. Missionaries often preach on it. But before we go to Acts chapter 13, I think it would be helpful for us to meditate on these words. So Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 35, And Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. But when he saw the multitude, he was moved with compassion on them, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep, having no shepherd. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. So what we see, what we see in this passage is that Christ was burdened or moved by the condition of these people that he was seeing. And the word there that is translated moved with compassion is an interesting word. It's used only 12 times in your New Testament. And nine times it is specifically used concerning Jesus. And if you were to do a survey of that word and how it's used in the New Testament, you would find that it's used of his response to human need. But not only did he feel pity on people, not only did he desire to do something about their need, he actually did it. Jesus didn't act, just feel sorry for people. He actually moved to do something about their need every time. And he was intensely practical in that need. When the blind man needed healing, he healed him. When the leper came to him and begged for healing, he healed him. When the multitude was hungry, he fed it. So whenever Jesus feels this compassion within himself, he moves to do something about it. And notice what moved him. He says, because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. This is that we should pay attention to this. Whenever we see in the scriptures an insight into the heart of God, when it reveals to us something that motivates God, we should sit up and pay attention. Jesus is motivated when he sees people that are fainted and scattered abroad as sheep. They are, they are a sheep with no shepherd, no one to guide them on the way of life. And in his intensely, don't miss this, in his intensely practical answer to this need, what does he do? He turns to his disciples, his followers. And he says to them, the harvest truly is plenteous, but the laborers are few. He says to his disciples, basically, we have a problem. There is a plentiful harvest out there, but there's not enough workers to meet the need. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out what happens to a harvest if there's not enough workers to meet a need. It goes to waste. So what should we do about this? In verse 38, he, he tells his disciples, Pray ye, therefore the Lord of the harvest, that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. 
So he, in answer to the human need that he saw, Jesus turned to his disciples and he said, I want you to pray that God would thrust out laborers, laborers into the harvest field of this world. Now, that, 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 that's interesting. We might scratch our heads and say, well, why did he ask that? Does God need convincing to send out missionaries? No. If God sent his only begotten son into the world to die for our sins, I don't think God needs convincing to send out missionaries. So why did he give this command? What Jesus is doing here is he is inviting his disciples to participate in his burden. He is taking the burden that he saw and he is putting it on his disciples. And he is inviting them to join him in his burden and the solution to that burden. When we find ourselves genuinely burdened for the lost peoples of this world and asking God to meet that need, we are united or one with him in this issue. We are seeing the issue as he sees it. We are agreeing with God that there is a need that must be met or unfathomable loss is going to happen. And we are agreeing with him that something must be done. One of the ways that Christ's disciples labor with him in this world is through prayer. This is something I wish I understood more, to be quite honest. But the New Testament is clear. God does things in this world in response to the requests that you and I bring before him. <clears throat> Jesus said in John 14, 11 through 14, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever ye shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If ye shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. 1 John 5.14, and this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. And if we know that he hear us whatsoever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have desired of him. If Jesus told us to beseech the Lord for something and we obey, we should expect him to actually answer it. If we simply come before him and mouth words, we don't believe him. But if Jesus specifically told us to pray for something, we know that that is his will. And therefore, we can approach his throne with confidence that he will actually hear us and that he will actually do something about what we asked him to do. To do otherwise is unbelief. The amazing implication of this passage is that part of God's plan to dispatch laborers into the harvest field is in response to our prayers. 
What an incredible thought that is. So now turning over, with that foundation laid, turning over to Acts 13. Once again, we find Paul and Barnabas in the church in Antioch, and it says, Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, as Barnabas and Simeon, that was called Niger, and Lucius of Cyrene, and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work where <clears throat> Excuse me, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them, and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. So then being so they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed unto Seleucia, and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. So here we find men at the church at Antioch seeking to serve the Lord, praying, fasting, and God Himself says to them, separate me, Paul and Barnabas. In other words, you could say that he's saying, separating from your midst to me, Paul and Barnabas, for the purpose I have for them, namely the work that I have called them to do. God asked the church at Antioch to participate in what he was doing, namely sending Barnabas and Saul to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to people that had yet to hear of Jesus and what he had done with them. And notice, the, notice that they responded in obedience, and in this way, they labored with God. The sending forth of missionaries from our midst to take the gospel to the regions that do not have it is one way that the New Testament church labors with God. So they obeyed, they prayed, they sought the Lord, they obeyed, they sent them away. But what they did with Barnabas and Saul is also described in Acts chapter 14 and verse 26, where, where when Paul and Barnabas came back to Antioch, it says, And they sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they had fulfilled. So not only did the church at Antioch recognize what God was doing in the lives of Paul, and Barnabas and obey him in sending them, but they recommended them to the grace of God. And the word for recommended there has the idea of deliver over to, hand over to, or to commit. So these men that were sent out for missionaries from their church, they had sent them and they had committed them, they had entrusted them to the grace of God to enable them and keep them in the work that God was sending them to do. And then back in chapter 13, and verse 4, we see that ultimately it was the Holy Ghost that sent them forth. It says, so they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost. So we see in this whole process of Paul and Barnabas being sent out of the church at Antioch, it was a matter of God doing business with his church. God had called Paul before this point, as far as I can tell, to his mission. And he called on the church at Antioch to recognize that call and to send him forth. And thus the church at Antioch had a part in the work that God was doing. So we see the high privilege 
of sending missionaries, but I don't want to deny the fact this morning that there is a sacrifice in sending missionaries. If we were to look at the history in Acts before this, we would find that Paul and Barnabas had been at the church at Antioch for a whole year, ministering to them and teaching them. And no doubt in that time, there were people in that church that they had grown close to that hated to see them go. So yes, we need to pray that God sends forth missionaries, but we have to understand that when God actually does something about our prayers and puts his finger on someone's life in the church and says, this is the one I want, send him. There very well may be sacrifice involved. You may hate to see them go. You may be tempted to think, well, wait a minute, there's a bunch of people around here that need to be reached with the gospel. Lord, we could really use that guy. And there may be a temptation to hang on to what God would send. If we read the account of the first missionary journey, we would also find that sending forth missionaries also potentially sends them into trouble even in the harm's way. And it's interesting, if you take the time to read Acts, Acts, Acts chapter 13 through 14, the persecution that Barnabas and Saul just kind of starts, uh, experience just kind of starts gradually and builds up. Pastor mentioned this morning the sorcerer that they encountered at Cyprus, and that's a great story. That's the kind of stories that, makes, that make good prayer letters because they won, Right? But uh, as they continued their missionary journey, they experienced things like getting chased out of town, like getting stoned. Those things don't make such good, those things don't make as good prayer letters as what happened on Cyprus, but they do happen. So there very well may be sacrifice in sending forth missionaries, and this can have effects on missionaries and the people sending them. You know, Satan does things to get missionaries discouraged. He will bring things into their lives to frighten them, to bring them down, to discourage them, to convince them to give up the work that God wants them to do. This is revealed to us very clearly in the New Testament. Satan does not give up without a fight. But not only might the sacrifice involved have an effect on the missionaries. Like we said, it might have an effect on those sending them. <clears throat> like we said, holding on to loved ones or using your influence to keep them from pursuing missions. And in this way, don't miss this, it is very possible for a church to get in the way of God sending somebody. And that, to say that that way might be shocking, but it's true. You know, one of, the, one of the strengths of this church is this is a family-oriented church. There are several strong families that make up this church. But if God starts working in someone's heart, don't hold on to your family member. Let God have his way. Send them. Don't fight against God. And as we consider the sacrifice that's involved in sending, let us beware of 
bitterness and overreaction. When, when people go forth as missionaries, trials will happen and physical harm may come. But we must remember the words of Jesus when he warned his disciples. He said, these, when he spoke of the harm that may come to them, the difficulty that they might experience, he said, these things have I spoken unto you that you should not be offended. And the word offended there has the idea of to put a stumbling block or impediment in the way upon which another may trip and fall. Or as someone else applied it, to cause a person to begin to distrust and desert one whom he ought to trust and obey. Persecutions, disappointments, troubles will happen. But it's important for us to recognize these things do not give us the right to reject biblical commands and precepts. One way people can become bitter when they're hurt or disappointed by something that happens is they become bitter. And my friends, the only thing that does is it destroys you. It doesn't, it doesn't, the one, the one that ultimately harms is you. It eats you up on the inside, not what you're mad at. So when we, when we are confronted by hurts or disappointments or maybe a way that someone has misapplied or abused or twisted a biblical truth, the solution is not to react to that in such a way that we end up rejecting the biblical truth altogether, but we must come back to the scriptures and honestly and humbly and thoroughly search out what they say about the matter and submit ourselves to it. So we've seen that there's a privilege in sending missionaries. We've seen that there's, there can be a sacrifice in sending missionaries. And then I, I want to finish with this. There's also a reward for sending missionaries. Turn back over to chapter 14. And again in verse 26, and they say it, and, th and thence sailed to Antioch, from whence they had been recommended to the grace of God for the work which they fulfilled. And when they were come and had gathered the church together, they rehearsed all that God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith unto the Gentiles. And there abode, they abode long time with the disciples. Notice, please, in verse 27, he says, they rehearsed how God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In other words, Paul and Barnabas were able to come back to the church at Antioch and say, what you sacrificed, what you gave up, what you recommended to the grace of God, God used to bring forth fruit that will last for eternity. In closing, turn over with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I've come to love 1 Thessalonians. I find it very practical for where I'm at at life as Paul gives us a glimpse into his heart as a missionary. Towards the end of chapter 2, we read these words, and starting in verse 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face, this is Paul talking to the Thessalonian believers, with great desire, 
Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. And then note this, for what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye, those we labored to reach with the gospel, are our glory and joy. What was their hope and their joy as they went forward? It was the people that God was going to redeem as they went forth preaching the word. And then notice, notice how he describes them. He calls them their crown of rejoicing. Now, some people might come to this passage and they might say, well, this is a crown that God gives. This is a physical crown that God gives to those that evangelize. But I think it's pretty clear in this passage that the crown is the Thessalonian believers. It is those people that when Jesus Christ comes again are standing there. the greater day of rejoicing and reporting that is coming. And for those that labor with God, when that day comes, we will be able to look at the people that God reached and say, we heard what Christ said and responded in faith. We obeyed him and labored with him. And look at what he did. Brethren, God in his infinite grace has granted us a high privilege. We have the opportunity of living and working with him in this life. Will we pass it by and embrace it? Excuse me, will we pass it by or, we will, or will we embrace it and join the Lord of the harvest in the work that he is doing in this world? Pastor, will you come and close us? Let us pray. Lord of the harvest, Give us your eyes to see as you see. Give us your heart to be moved as you are moved. Call us. Send us. Fill us. Use us. As I think of my requests, I am thrilled to know that you have given us your spirit. And so we have your heart, we have your eyes. May we not quench your spirit, but may we be yielded, surrendered, filled with you. The privilege of all the fullness of God abiding in us tabernacles of clay. Lord Jesus, Lord of the harvest, send. May each one of us 
be ready, willing to go. May we as a church be ready, willing to send. May your gospel have free course and go forth. May you be glorified in each of our hearts and lives as you work in us and through us. We give thanks today for the high privilege, the high privilege of being called to a work with you that you desire, you have designed to accomplish a great task. You have given us a commission that you desire to use us in. May we be emptied of ourselves and may we abide in you. And you abide in us and your word abide in us that your word might be glorified and you, our heavenly Father, be glorified through our lives. Dear Spirit of God, move in our hearts today. May we be encouraged. May we be challenged. May we be rebuked. And may we have ears to hear. May we have humility to accept. And would you do a work today? We praise you for what you've done in Matt and Anna's life and how you are leading them as we are considering the work you have called them to. I pray that your spirit would affirm and confirm in our hearts as the role and function we have as a church, whether you would have us to be the ones to send, to recommend them such a privilege. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would raise up laborers from among each one here, that we would be willing to go wherever you send us that we would be faithful here now just as Paul and Barnabas were faithful in that place, in that church, in that ministry. They were faithful in serving. May we be faithful in serving, reaching our own region, our own communities, so that if and when you call us, we'll be ready and our senses would be exercised as we have been walking in your spirit already. We commit ourselves to you and we bow to you. We also pray, dear Spirit of God, that you would move among the hearts of those here present who have not believed on Jesus, have not received Jesus, that today they would. That they would be able to be a part of your body and that they would be able to be a part of this great commission that you have commissioned your body, your church, to accomplish. May all glory, honor, and praise be to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.